Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to episode 10 of the Believe Knicks podcast. I am Matthew Miranda, joined as always by Stacey Patton. We are here at a little past the halfway point of the season. And if you have been living under a rock, you may not be aware that there's a lot of talk going on around the New York Knicks of late. And we are here to add to that immense pile of talk. Um, Stacy. things are not looking good in Whoville. Um, the Knicks had a chance this week to kind of fatten up on some teams that you thought at home they might be able to, and they definitively have not. Um, Low-lighted by the Pelicans debacle a couple nights ago. I don't really want to focus on the games today as much as I want to focus on some of just the big picture talk going around the Knicks, which as always seems to center initially around Julius Randle. Um, and I want to give you a proposition and see what you think of it. Um, At least take me to dinner first. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Julius Randle obviously is getting most of the heat and, and some of it is certainly deserved. Um, I am, am finding myself really turned off by his body language um, with the officials, with his teammates. He had another Fournier um, kind of blow up right at the end of the half. And you can argue, you know, whatever about um, whether that's just competitiveness or whatever, but I don't, I don't like it. Um, but I'm curious your take on Randall in this regard. And this kind of stems from uh, the recap at the Strickland yesterday that um, – I can't remember. Uh, it was Jeff uh, Frank Barrett, aka Jeff Rasmus. Yes, thank you. Uh, I, I couldn't remember his Twitter. It's like Frank Barrett one 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 six or something like that. So he had a very long, well, well articulated stance on what actually has happened with Randall, and it was dispassionate. It wasn't like Randall sucks or Randall doesn't care. It was. It was. I thought a good systemic look at things that have happened maybe this year that have impacted Randall. Um, my question to you is this. Julius Randle, and he's not, he's not the whole thing, but we'll get to other points. Julius Randle is averaging 19, 10, and 5. This is the first year of his career that he's shooting over 30% from three in a non-contract year. Um, is it possible that, and this extends to the Knicks in general, that the biggest problem that we're having right now with the Knicks is that in many ways, last year has nothing to do with this year and that the problem is our expectations were out of whack and not that the Knicks are necessarily failing. Because I would say that I, I don't think last year doesn't count, but it was exceptional in many ways. And if you told a Knicks fan two years ago that two years from now they'd be – and I know we don't want to keep doing the like, you know, past expectations, but like – they're basically a 500 team halfway through the year. Um, Randall's assists are up from two years ago. His turnovers have not gone up commensurately. Um, is there any sense that like this is just our own out-of-whack expectations off of last season? Um, yes and no. Um, so there's parts. So I'm, I'm kind of looking holistically. There's a whole lot of people, um, writers, who you know, thought that Randall would regress, you know, with fans back in the stands, that the Knicks, you know, had three-point luck, um, that the East had gotten a lot better. And and I think even the people who said the East got better, didn't. no one really predicted Cleveland, 
right? So no, it's actually no. better than and anyone expected. People or thought Washington. Chicago would be good. I don't know if anyone had Washington where they are right now either. Yeah. Um, which shows, I mean, it, it kind of vindicates Beal a little bit. It shows, you know, the value of that trade. But the point is, yeah, like the people expected the East to got better, and it's been even better than that. Um, so a lot of people are saying, I told you so with the Dicks. Mm-hmm. And actually, most people, a lot of people have been gracious enough not to be that outward. But I think during the summer, with our optimism around Fournier and Kemba, I don't even think people hated those acquisitions. It was just, you know, um, it was unlikely Julius. And, and I think that's the biggest difference between last year and this year. Julius Randle isn't hitting jump shots. He's, he's, we thought he wouldn't shoot 40% from mid-range again and hit a bunch of tough fadeaways. He's not even hitting open ones right now. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is, like, you can we say that, well, he needs to go to the rim more. He needs to stop settling. He's taking 30% of his shots within three feet of the hoop. Um, so it's not like, you know, it's not like he's not doing that, which is, you know, it's lower than his career average. Um, mm-hmm. But he was used more as a role man earlier in his career, which is you can argue that that's his better role. But the mm-hmm. point is, it's not like he's just settling for jumpers. He's taking fewer mid-range shots than last year. He's taking slightly more threes, and he's taking nearly double the number of shots at the rim. So, um, so it really and yeah, like like you said, his assists are slightly down from last year without the turnovers going up. But that's still better than it has been for his career. Yeah. Um, so it's not like he's turned into like those parts of his game, like settling for shots, or shot selection and passing, are not noticeably that much worse than last year. Bigger issue, he's he's not hitting shots, you know. <laughs> And he's looking more like the shooter he's been for most of his career, um, which makes then the question becomes, I think he can be a very efficient player if he plays the role he did play in New Orleans, right? He, the year before when the Knicks signed right. him, he played 31 minutes. He came off the bench quite a bit um, and he averaged 21, nine and, and three um, with three turnovers. But um, that's acceptable when it's not your primary option. He shot 34% from three. And he was like a 60% true shooting, right? Like you would take that and he'd be worth his contract now. But that player, of course, has to be a second or third option. And you have to be able to surround them with somebody who can both shoot the three and protect the rim because it's just tough for him to be in that role right now. Um, There are people. So let me let me throw that back to you. A, does that make sense? And B, do you think the bigger issue is the fact that the paint is crowded? Or do you think it's more the fact that the Knicks need a primary creator so that Randall can shift to that role. Yes, all those things. I think that we underestimate. Um, when I watch the Knicks a lot, I I don't know how to make complete sense of it, like holistically. But especially of late, when I watch the Knicks, I don't I don't think that Randall is best paired with a center like what the Knicks have. Um, now, you could argue last year that they didn't really work against him, but like Mitch was gone a lot of last year. He was still playing well when Mitch was there, but I don't think the centers compliment Randall. I don't think the Knicks, despite the moves they made in the offseason, it is disheartening how often you see this team cycling the ball 30 feet around the perimeter and nobody can break down their man. Um, and then it goes to Randall, kind of in a desperate last situation. Randall is reminding me in a very different way. And like, I know there are people out there who like got, don't understand the difference between things being the same and things being similar. So I want to point out this is a similarity and not an accusation of sameness. But um, 
it just reminds me of in the mid '90s when Patrick Ewing was a free agent, was heading toward free agency in his early 30s, and the Knicks gave him a four-year extension for really good money, at a time when it was obvious that he was heading towards complementary status. The Knicks made the mistake of paying him still like a lead, and then bringing in complementary players. In 1997, Larry Johnson was not Larry Johnson from five years earlier. You know, Allen Houston was not a lead. And I feel like last year, understandably, Randall played like a lead, um, at least till the playoffs. And his regular season was brilliant. So the Knicks brought in this offseason secondary complementary guys. The problem, I think, in large part, as it's played out, is that Randall is secondary. And if you surround secondary with secondary, like you're going to have problems. I mean, there's other issues also. But I think... I think that's as big a problem as anything. I don't think the team around him maximizes his abilities, but I also don't think that he's a guy that you build the whole team around. If they're going to rebuild, I think they have to rebuild in a sense of Randall's a part of what we're doing, not let's make everything around Randall. Because I I just don't think... I You've talked about this a lot during the pod this season. The ceiling on where a Randall-built team can get you is probably what we saw last year. And that was great for last year. But if you're trying to build on top of that, especially with the East being the way it is, every team in the East ahead of the Knicks virtually has some player who is more of a lead than than Julius Randle. And that's not on him. Like, I don't put that on him. Um, maybe not more of a lead. But I would say that, like, I don't think Julius Randle is an obvious, like, okay, there's our foundation. But he's being treated like one, and as a result, and and Jeff wrote about this in his piece yesterday, I think because he makes the money and because he has the biggest numbers, people are coming down on him for things that are not his fault, like Obi Toppin. It's not Julius Randle's fault that Thibodeau won't play them together. It's not Julius Randle's fault that the Knicks basically drafted his replacement right after his, his first year here, and it hasn't gone according to par, but like the game they played... Who'd they play before the Pelicans? Um, the Wolves, the T-Wolves. Minnesota. Randall is at the line with 24 seconds left in a two-point game. And the crowd, and not not the majority, but like there's a sizable contingent chanting Obi Toppin. I've never seen that in my entire life watching the Knicks. I've never seen the crowd chanting for player X while player Y is at the line. And that's not Randall's fault. I understand the frustration. I watch the games. I get pissed. But I, I think it's a combination of the team is failing the player in terms of what they're putting around him. And I do think Randall bears the responsibility this season of not doing a good enough job of being at least a leader. Like, you can struggle, but the body language, the refusal to meet with the media, like, some people don't care about that. I don't care about a guy taking a couple of nights off from talking to the press. But with everything else going on, the least Randall could do would be sit in front of the cameras and like spout some cliches just to get people off your back. I, I find that to be, to me, even more than his on the court struggles, like his biggest dereliction this year. And I think it hurts the Knicks. Yeah, it's the body language stuff. For me, I try not to get too wrapped up in it because yeah. there are clips in the game. You can isolate and find every clip of anyone at work, by the way, having a bad moment, right? And with Randall, there's just more scrutiny. The thing with Fournier, I think that happens between teammates 
more often than we think. Yes. Um, so I'm not. Gonna... But does it matter to you that it happens in that kind of a public way? Um, like I you can it... have at work a bad day and understand that, like, if if a coworker comes along and says something that, and I know it's sports is a little bit different, but there's a difference between doing it in the locker room, doing it on the flight, doing it behind closed doors, and and throwing your teammates' hands off of you aggressively. Maybe not aggressively, but like, you know what I mean? Like, you're right. That kind of shit happens at work all the time. But most people, there's a standard of like, I can't do this in public. So with that, with that last dust up, right? That was because Randall was pissed at the refs. Yes. Before he was trying to hold him back, right? Basically. Yeah. Yeah, right? We've seen, I've seen that happen. I've yeah, seen people true. do that's that. True. I've seen people shove their own teammates or their coaches when they're trying to get around them to make the show of I'm not walking away. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that's some personal enmity between Randall. I think it's fair to argue that he's too animated and expressive um, to the extent that it definitely feels like the Knicks do not get the benefit of the doubt from the refs. You have to end yourself how much of that is they're doing. And fair, I'm not trying to blame the victim here, but how much, like we saw that Melo throughout his career, the treatment he got from the refs deteriorated because he always used to argue with them, right? Yep. Or that, sorry, there were probably other factors in his game and perhaps the fact that the refs just like LeBron or whatever. But we know that, at least in part, it doesn't seem to help your case when the refs get annoyed at you. And they certainly get annoyed at Tibbs a lot. Yes. Um, so those would be fair points. But in terms, I think Julius Randle is an expressive guy. Uh, what annoys me is when he doesn't get back on defense and points at someone and blames yes. them. Yes, yes. Um, but I don't know if that's, I don't think team morale is low. And I don't think the guys dislike Julius or have a problem with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's fair reasons to be like, do your job and stop yelling at people, those kind of things. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think like that. That's really what bugs me is like, if it's like Grimes, who's a, a rookie and like, be like, you don't want to run back. So you're like, why didn't you cover my guy who was streaking towards the rim? That's, that's annoying, but I don't think it's causing any leadership. I don't think the leadership is the main problem with the Knicks. Um, I think they like this past week, the Pelicans game was, was a disaster. Um, and I think there were blame, plenty of blame to go all around. But what the other the Timberwolves game, I think they just have less talent. To your point, the Timberwolves had the best player on the floor. Yes. Uh, they also had Anthony Edwards. They had a ton of young, super athletic guys that the Knicks don't have. The Charlotte Hornets are not more talented than the Knicks, but they're on our range. And even with Lamelo, again, without Lamelo, they they have an athleticism advantage. Yeah, they do. Um, we just we struggle against those teams, and the Pelicans. I think that we that that's the game the Knicks should not have lost. They had the talent advantage, mm-hmm. but it was a similar thing when it was a younger, more athletic team. So I think the problem with the Knicks is a lack of athleticism in the starting lineup and a lack of speed, um, more than it is leadership. And I think it comes down to Tibbs's um, rotation. So if you want to say that that in itself is a, a weakness, fine. Uh, or the leadership weakness, but I'm saying like in terms of the team is just a mess in the locker room. Yeah, they don't seem fractured or toxic. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that's a thing. Now let me ask you this, um, and I'm glad you brought up the athleticism point because I'm actually working on a piece now for the Strickland about this issue goes back forever um, in Nick history. The Knicks are just committed to not being as athletic as other teams and have been always. Um, so it's a different era in a lot of ways like there are things that are just fundamentally different and we know that 
for example, there's like old school coach coaching techniques that just don't fly with how the, the players in the world are today. Like you have to change your methods because it's a different time. I think it was Josh Hart after the game who said something like um, the crowd wasn't like rooting for the Pelicans, but they definitely weren't rooting for the Knicks. And I'm not ever going to tell someone in an audience, you know, how to feel or what to do. But do you think that there is, um, like, I hear this point coming up more and more than I ever used to. And I think it's selective because I think like, like last year going into the playoffs when the Knicks were finally able to have a full crowd, I didn't hear anybody speculate like, oh, this will be great for the Hawks. Like it was exciting for the Knicks. And historically when the Knicks have been good, they've been really good at home. So the argument that like MSG is a disadvantage, I think is a crutch that people use when the Knicks are struggling. But I I, I wanted to ask, I've written about this a little bit and I, I could totally be in my own madness about this, but I feel like maybe there is still more going on between the live audience towards Randall than is being talked about. And there's a couple reasons for this. One is that I find the Obi chance at times are like, like when Randall was at the line, I thought that was like out of line. And I find that RJ Barrett seems to be getting sheared a lot more now. And I know he's playing better, but I feel that like the RJ chance have picked up ever since Randall made the thumbs down gesture to the crowd. Do you think that there is anything of substance to the idea that there's there's a schism forming, not with the team in Randall, but maybe with a sizable enough portion of the fan base? And do you think it matters now? Like this idea of of is the crowd supportive enough? Is the crowd not supportive enough? Is that only an argument because the Knicks are struggling? Because as the moment the Knicks go on an 8-0 run, the crowd is completely behind them. Yeah, I mean, you saw it against the Pelicans, right? The, the Knicks had the, another fake comeback, and the crowd got really into it then. Mm-hmm. We know, and we know that they've cheered Randall too. Um, I think it's unfair to say that they just have it out for him. Yeah, um, I think he gets the majority of the blame because he's the star player. That I mean, that goes back to the the front office not putting him. And I think the front office is aware that if you look at the contract he was given. He's not paid like the best player on a championship team. Yeah. He's played like the second best player on kind of a spread out championship team or the third best player on like a top heavy championship team, right? Mm-hmm. He might not even be that. That'd be the bigger concern. But getting back to this whole thing, I don't think I, I agree. Shanning Obi Toppin when he's at the line, um, you know, we're supposed to like, if, you know, when they're taking free throws, that's the time when the crowd is supposed to be silent, right? That's supposed to be a lot harder for the road team than you. If yeah. you're not doing that, that's a problem, right? Um, but you know, there's other things too, right? The crowd, the crowd is gonna boo when you're just getting outrun or you're making poor turnovers. Mm-hmm. That might happen more frequently in New York than it happens elsewhere. But um, you know, play better is, is the easy answer. But um, that's part of it. And then the other part, I, I don't think there's a real, I don't think there's anything serious. Like players are gonna get annoyed by fans a lot, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's like it's the peanut gallery. It's all of that. That doesn't mean, but that could be. There could be a more complex relationship, right? Like you understand that they're not going to understand what's going on. But I do enjoy playing for them, and the goal to like play well is still there. Mm-hmm. I don't think Julius has like turned against the fan base or something like that. He's going to demand a trade, but certainly or something like that. Um, but he's going through a tough time. I think when 
like I said, the f- simple fact is he's not making jump shots. And when that's not happening and you're in that kind of a funk, your mentality can be all over the place. Um, so, and, and I mean, we can blame the fans, but I think it's worth the, the media deserves a, a heavy share of um, scrutiny as well, right? Because they do ask very pointed questions. You know, Mark Berman has now been called out a couple of times by players, somewhat jokingly. Um, you know, RJ and Mitch seem to handle right. it a little bit better. But we like Bondi is in that category. Uh, Popper is generally a little bit more fair. But like these reporters like to ask pointed questions. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying that can get under a player's skin as well. Uh, and I think that's what's going on. But it's nothing that has me alarmed as much as the level of play. So there, the, the one aspect of that, I don't, I don't want to obsess in the crowd. Like we'll move on to the players. Oh, but... there's there's one thing that annoyed me. That it did seem like Lamelo Ball signed a jersey for his kid. Maybe this was just a Twitter thing, but people like for Randall's kid. Oh, yeah, because he's a, yeah, because Randall's kid likes Lamelo Ball. So Lamelo Ball, after the game, signed his jersey and gave it to um, to Kyden Randall. People had a problem with that. There were people on Twitter that were like, "Oh, you know, like the stop hyping that up," and it's like, you know, come fuck on. you, fuck you. <laughs> now I don't. Does that happen? In, does that actually media publicized? Twitter's a weird place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, don't yeah. want to say that's representative of fans at MSG, but. Uh, there's just that's the kind of scrutiny that comes with the territory, and I don't think that's new to Randall. I don't think he's surprised by it. Yeah. But sometimes you just need a break. I think Jeff said this in his article too. At this point, Randall, more than anything else, it seems like he needs a break. Yes. Yeah. Uh, on that point, I mean, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen literally Leo Messi meet player like opponents before the game with their kids, or like immediately afterwards, and the kids are like fawning over Messi, and like it's just yeah. a joyful moment, like in a life. Um, I do want to ask about um, not this isn't in relation to the Knicks' performance so much. It is just a question of is this where we are now as a as a sport culture? I find it stunning that you know two years ago Randall is getting booed fairly, you know, for his play. Last year into early this year, Randall's getting MVP chance, and, <laughs> and now like he's getting booed. And I just find something very like I just find something crazy about about a guy that rapidly going from MVP chance to like boo, we want Obi Toppin instead. I, I don't have a, a deep analysis about that. I just find it surprising. Do you um, think he's getting booed, or do you think the whole team's getting booed? I think I think at times it is directed mostly at him. I do think it's the team. Like, Randall can be off the floor, and if the Knicks have a bad stretch, like, they're getting booed. But I do feel that, like, do you, I don't see any other player on the Knicks that I feel like has been the target of specific boos this year besides Randall. Like, Mitchell missed a free throw. What's that? I think beyond the OB chance, I don't really see him getting targeted as much, right? He is the main player on the floor, and it happens to happen after maybe he takes some bad shots. Yeah. But it's not that so- also just that's that's going to happen because of the role he plays. But they could, I think that generally yeah. it's audit, it's directed at the team because the entire team is playing like garbage. It's not sizable with Randall, and I would say that like maybe you you earn it a bit when you basically tell the crowd to shut the fuck up. But Barrett takes shots sometimes, not not as much recently. Like Barrett, sometimes it was a couple of games ago. Barrett had a line and had some shots that if Randall had done the same thing, like forget it. And and there are some games early on, like I think the crowd is pretty um, imbalanced. Honestly, like Randall hits his first eighteen footer and it's all cheers. Randall misses his first eighteen 
footer and you'll hear a smattering, not like the crowd. I I should be careful to distinguish that. It's not like it's 19,763 people pouring down on Randall. But I would say that like Kemba can be off. Kemba's not going to hear anything. Um, RJ can miss terrible looking shots. He's not going to hear anything. Um, You know, Alec Burks, other than his three point shot, Alec Burks has really struggled at the rim this year and even in his mid-range game. Alec Burks doesn't get it. And I know none of those guys are getting are, you know, are on the, the deal that Randall is and have the the rep and the responsibility that Randall does. But I do feel like I've seen Nick fans do this, and maybe there is a logic to it, like you're saying. Like when Carmelo Anthony was there, he's gonna get booed more than Iman Shumpert because he has he's a bigger deal. And Patrick Ewing's gonna get booed more than you know, Greg Anthony, because he's a bigger deal, but I can't quite put my finger on it yet. So maybe it doesn't exist. There's something about Randall's relationship with the fans that feels unfair to me, but it might just be quite as simple as like, I don't, I don't like seeing a person, you know, feeling bad and obviously struggling, um, which isn't necessarily the crowd's fault at all, but I just, something there is not rubbing me right. I, I, I never would have thought a year ago that like Randall might be gone early in his contract. And more and more, I'm thinking like, maybe he will, because maybe he'll want that. He's not unmovable. And there's a lot of places Randall could do what he's doing and not get booed. Not saying it's right or wrong. Just saying like there, there's something there that's weird to me. I'm not sure what it is though, um, which doesn't really make for good audio. Um, I, I I completely forgot about this and realized that made me want to ask you about it. Do you think this team misses Nerlens Noel at all? Oh, I thought you were going to say a different name that I really do think they missed. Derek Rose. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, easy. That's a yes. Um, but Noel, I was reading someone was writing about him the other day and like how you know Noel was this constant, not just rim protector, but like he's a pretty good perimeter, you know, for a for a big. He's pretty good out on the perimeter. He seemed to fit what they were doing. Um, this is not, I mean, Mitch has been, I think, really, really good. And I think Taj has pretty much been Taj. But I don't think the Knicks, um, and it's hard to see because if you follow their ratings during the year, kind of as you would expect, the offensive rating has continued to drop. Now they're back to, I think, around 23rd um, or mid-20s. And the defensive rating has kept climbing. Last I saw it was 13th. I don't think about Noel anymore at all. And I find that strange because last year I thought he was one of their most impressive, most pleasant surprises. But when I think about what's hurting the team this year, I don't think, oh, Noel would fix that. But does it seem like they miss Noel to you? Or do you think? Well, I mean, you know, so last year he was hugely important because Mitchell Robinson was out. Right. That's a big part of it. Um, Earlier this year, it seemed like they missed him because Mitchell Robinson was playing poorly. Of late, that's less the case, but with an exception, and that is that Noel has like a different skill set, right? Mitch has gotten bigger, and he's getting some of his quickness back. Yeah. But even even last year when Mitch was playing at his best, Noel was a little bit better at switching on the perimeter. Yeah. Like he can really switch on guards. He causes more steals than Mitch. Yep. He gets more blocks, so the part of that is he has a ten- like Mitch is more disciplined than him. Right. Um, now, his weaknesses are very known, too. He has poor hands. Um, he gets boxed out too easily. I think he actually fights reasonably well. I don't think it's a lot. There are centers that just don't care about rebounding. That's not the case with Nerlens Noel, but he just 
it's just physics, right? Yeah. Um, he just gets pushed too easily. Um, and that's fine. Um, but, but those are, but I think it comes back to with him, you have three centers with pretty different skill sets, right? You have your rim runner, who's probably your best at finishing. He has pretty good hands, although they're not amazing. He's probably your best defender when you consider shot blocking, perimeter D, and um, and rebounding. So you have Mitch, who is your go-to center. Mm-hmm. You have Taj, who is aging, shouldn't be giving you 25 minutes a night. But what he can do is he gives you a little bit more offensive skill. He can he can put the ball on the floor and pass out of a double, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not out of a double team, but he can be an outlet for a double team. And that's something they've that was exposed a bit in the last couple of games. Um, but he's obviously only six nine or so. Obviously, can't get up like he used to. But he's just he's a smart positional player that gives you a little bit more on offense. And then Nerlens gives you that better switchability against super athletic teams, maybe with a stretch five. Um, you know, that's. But the thing is, you look at this roster and you have a lot of guys who are situationally really good um, in certain matchups, right? There are certain matchups when Evan Fournier should be the guy on the floor, for example. Yes. Uh, um, because the other team is defending him with someone like Luka Doncic, um, where he might have a speed advantage at getting to the rim, right? Mm-hmm. Or where the defense they're running allows him to pop open, and he's better at hunting those shots. Or you know, you can put him in pick and roll; he's not getting blitzed, and he can make plays. Or they're not able to isolate him on defense. There's other times when the other team is going to be throwing three, four, six, eight guys with blazing speeds who are just going to run right past Fournier and steal the ball from him. Yeah. During those games, Quentin Grimes would probably be a better option, right? Uh, you can go to like you can play twelve or thirteen. You can make arguments for twelve, thirteen, fourteen guys on this roster at this point. Um, and it would be nice. Now that can be a little extreme because you lose continuity, and we know that Tibbs loves continuity. But using those different tools for like, if the word situational actually meant that sometimes we're gonna play Deuce McBride if the other team has a guard that we want to like, if it's Trey Young and we want to use a couple fouls and and get in his face or something. I, I don't know. I think Quickly is a pretty good defender too. I think you can use Grimes in that role. But, you know, you have these options. Even a guy like Jericho Sims, right? You have the option to, yeah. you know, he sets good screen. Like, they all have, like, these specific skill sets. And I it's frustrating because I feel like we kind of just go, you're the backup and you're the starter, and that's it without kind of thinking, well, today this actually could work a little bit better and maybe yeah. we play the 11th or 12th guy. There was a moment like that. I think it was in the Timber. Yeah, it was the Timberwolves game. Early in the fourth, very close game, Mitch, I think Mitch got his fifth foul. And I think Taj also had five at that point. And Thibodeau, I think he brought in Taj. And Jericho Sims is like on the bench. And it was one of those moments where, like, if ever Jericho Sims could, could fit in, like, you only needed about a maybe a three or four minute stretch from someone before you could bring Mitch back in. I think Mitch actually maybe had, I don't know, he had four or five fouls, but it was a situation where if ever Sims was going to contribute, this was it. And Thibodeau didn't go there. And I thought about it. And I wanted to ask you um, if you think that I, I have a hard time reconciling that Tom Thibodeau is so, I think of him as someone who is, obsessed with winning like you know that he's he's chosen a life of celibacy because he just wants to win basketball games like that's all the man cares about but the biggest issue people have had with Thibodeau I feel like since he's been here has been like rotational constipation like he will not deviate from these ideals 
presumably with a whole coaching staff, a whole God knows how, like, can it be as simple as Tom Thibodeau doesn't understand that you have to deviate sometimes from your own plans? Yeah, there's definitely, like I said, there's a trade-off, right? And I think priority number one since he's gotten here is in building an identity. Um, and he that's that's something it's, and that perhaps is why, you know, his teams come out really strong. And then the critique that's often been leveled at him is over time they get worse, right? Um, you know, Chicago, he started off as the top team in the Eastern Conference. They were good for many years. And a lot of things were out of his control. Right. Um, you know, I don't think it was over minutes or too many minutes that caused Derek Rose to tear his ACL, but no, he's gotten that wet blend. Um, yeah, so I think that on the other hand, um, but I think that when someone sticks to something, we praised him for building an identity, right? The Knicks yeah. praised, lots of fans have praised him. So we need to be aware of the, the downsides of that, right? And it's not even just about a youth thing. Like if he doesn't think Jericho Sims is ready to play, uh, I get it. That's right. Fine, right. Uh, you don't want to put him in a tough spot. But it's like last year, there haven't been too many times when Mitch, Noel, and Todd are all healthy at the same time. But I would like to see Tibbs, for example, like use, like if it's a, if it's Clint Capella, right? Don't sell Nolan's Noel in, right? Todd is going to be better because Nolan's Noel is really going to get overwhelmed on the glass. We've seen that happen. Mm-hmm. Conversely, if it's a team that has, uh, you know, if it's like Chicago or something, right? And they're putting, they're forcing Gibson to guard at Zach Levine, Vucevic pick and roll. Maybe in that case, Noel is a better option. Although Vucevic can post too, right. but you know, they don't do that as much with him. But right. like taking those kind, that kind of calculus into, uh, into effect is something I wish you would do because the word situational should mean that sometimes this is going to be the better, the, 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 the best man for the job instead of just, but I mean, I think, but I think it, it probably goes deeper than that, right? It's probably a whole, it creates a certain culture and practice where, you know, they're competitive, you know, like, because, you know, having that spot means something. He probably wants to keep that, um, you know, I'm sure there's trades off trade-offs, but like, I think it's, it's not beyond the pale to point out that for his style of, of coaching, there are a lot of positives and there are negatives. And um, at some point you have, at any point in time, you have to weigh whether the negatives outweigh the positives. I think one thing that, I think that every coach is going to have some rotation decisions. I mean, Frank Vogel has an NBA championship um, and I believe he's one coach of the year. Yes. Um, and he's a, he's about to, he's coaching day to day, right? So um, all those things, I think, you know, you have to weigh them at any given point in time. I still think he's he's been fine. Um, I, I so we, getting back to your earlier point, right? The Knicks are five hundred. Is this so bad? They have had one of the easiest schedules in the league, and that yeah. will not be the case going forward. So it is quite possible they finish with 30, 32 wins. At which point, I think that is a disappointment. So, um, but so getting back to overall Tibbs, like we'll see. I'm not in a rush to make a decision on him. I think that the front office can do him some favors by consolidating a little bit, giving the roster a little bit more direction. Um, but I think it's, it's again, it's not beyond the pale to point out that for all the benefits of building consistent identity and, and continuity, uh, the lack of flexibility has its drawbacks too. And I wonder, like, we don't, I don't think that we tend to evaluate coaches the way that we do players, but just like, I would say Randall, like we, we said earlier, Randall is a good example of a player who like, He's a good player, but there's a, there's a ceiling to where he can bring you. Um, if Randall is the leader of your team, the first round is probably your ceiling. Whereas if you have a player like 
you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo, like there is no ceiling. And I don't know if this applies as much now with coaches because we're not living in the era anymore of like Phil Jackson and, and a relevant San Antonio team with Greg Popovich. But I'm not turning on uh, Thibodeau at all, but I'm curious, like seeing this and not getting a sense yet of like that it's stopping or that it's going to turn around. And I look at Thibodeau's career and I see like, okay, he was brilliant in Chicago especially when he had an MVP and he was really good last year with the Knicks when he had Randall playing out of his mind. Um, maybe the ceiling on Thibodeau is not what we thought it was. I, I'm just kind of throwing out questions because I don't, I don't know what to make of this team. I have no idea now if my feeling, I'm, I'm still happy Thibodeau's there, but I maybe, maybe there's yeah. a limit to what you can do with Tom Thibodeau. I don't know. I mean, I think the bigger issue with the roster, the biggest issue with the roster, as you mentioned before, is that the the vast majority of nights they go out on the floor, they will not have the best player. Yep. That's the biggest issue. They do not have a guy who can really create for everyone else. I don't. I think the point guard thing is overused because that can be a wing, that can be a shooting guard, mm-hmm. um, but it needs to be someone who can absorb a lot of uh, attention make tough shots and and be able to make the right reads. Julius has actually not been that bad at the at the third one. Um but it's making the shots um that he's not that good at and ultimately he doesn't make reads like a guy like Luka Doncic who can get away with a lack of efficiency and poor shot selection at times because he's an amazing passer. Mm-hmm. Um they lack that player. So that's that's why I I'm hesitant to like ultimately what is the ceiling with any coach of that t- kind of team? Mm. You can win a few more games. Um, the question is, long-term, does it behoove the Knicks to start moving in a different direction, right? Because if we do, when we do get those players here that can do that, are we, are we still going to be playing with the lack of pace? Is that a Tibbs thing? Are we still going to be playing with a lack of speed on the perimeter, right? And the thing is, because the Knicks do have speed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Knicks do not... I think that Kevin Fournier may well be the best two players at that position, I think I think everyone knows Derek Rose is better than Kemba, but I know Tibbs likes Derek Rose coming off the bench, and he himself can't play a ton of minutes. That's fine. Uh, it may, Fournier may be better than Grimes overall, um, but when you play those two together, right, you're exacerbating everything with a lack of foot speed. Yep. Yep. Um, so quickly gives you better defense than Kemba, better ability to that, or or Grimes gives you better foot speed than Fournier. But playing those two together is where it compounds. And it's those kinds of things where it's like, I mean, I think that there are certain predilections Tom Thibodeau has. So I think one, he tends to value size over athleticism and speed. Uh, I think he tends to, you know, you know, he tends to value slowing the, the pace down. Uh, he goes towards isolation a little bit, uh, quite a bit more often than other coaches. But I've also seen him run good sets, right? Um but I think for this team, slow it down, grind it out. Uh, you know the formula that they've executed, where they're not amazing on the glass, but they rebound just well enough. To, um, and you know they have elite rim protection, and they fly around and try to at least contest three pointers. That's that's still working. The de- defense has improved of late uh, for now. But if that's if once they have athletic players, right? Yeah. Uh, and I'm not even just talking about Cam Reddish. I'm talking about Deuce and Grimes. And Sims, right? Once they have those guys, is he going to be stuck to his ways, or is he going to be flexible um, and kind of play with more pace? Mm-hmm. That's that's what remains to be seen. Um, 
And I don't want to make any any judgments. And the last thing I'll say on Tibbs is people feel like he doesn't play the young players enough and it quote-unquote stunts their development. That's been empirically untrue for yes. the vast majority of his career. It's not just Derek Rose either. Todd Gibson, Jimmy Butler, Luol Deng, um, Joe Kim Noah, right? There are even Zach Levine only played for him for a year, but Zach Levine has actually spoken very highly of Tom Thibodeau um, and, you know, how Thibodeau trusted him with the keys to the offense. Mm -hmm. So I I do think that, you know, you might call it madness, but there are methods to a madness. I don't think any of the young players development as an individual is being hurt by Tibbs. The question is if and when we get to Valhalla um, in terms of a roster from a roster standpoint, is he going to be the guy that plays the optimal style of play um, to win uh, a multiple playoff series? I'm not willing to make a hard conclusion on that. I think there, but I think you brought up some fair concerns around that. Let me ask you one more question. When I came into this season, my standards for the Knicks being successful had nothing to do with their seeding or their record. Like I wanted to see, you know, continued development from the young players. I wanted to see, um, you know, Randall and Barrett not crater there was there there were things i wanted to see that had nothing to do with record or or seating to me as you pointed out earlier the knicks have i think it's the second hardest schedule in the league over the last 36 games um they could certainly still make the playoffs they're not far behind in the play and they're only you know they're they're a half a game behind the celtics they're a half a game behind washington for nine and they're only a game and a half behind toronto still for eight and, and when they played Charlotte, you know, if they had won that game, they would have been tied for seven. So it's not like they're out of reach of these spots. But my feeling is that the Knicks could win 41 games this year and miss the playoffs, and I could still feel okay about the team going forward. Or they could make the playoffs with 39 win, make the play-in, winning like 38 games, and I might feel shitty about it. Do you personally feel like with what's left in the season, what do you need to see from the Knicks, either in process or end product, to go into the offseason feeling like we're still moving, you know, in a good direction? Like, do they have to make the play-in? Do they have to advance in the play-in? You know, if you if the season ends with Grimes and quickly and Toppin looking like exceptional, like, is that enough? Like, what are you looking for? the last 36 games to feel like I know, I know where this team is headed and I'm okay with it. Um, to be honest, not that much. Um, I think yeah. there's already reasons why I've kind of resigned myself to the fact that this team, um, if they even get to a playoff series is unlikely to make much noise in the playoffs. Yeah. Um, so at that point, it's almost like a badge of honor, right? Like, Oh, we didn't, we didn't miss the playoffs after making it. The, but, you know, as the season goes on, that's becoming less and less of a priority for me, especially if there's an opportunity to add another talented player in the draft. Yeah. Um, but um, but I think, like, in terms of the young players, I think I've seen enough. Um, I would like to see Quickly's three-point percentage tick back up to last year. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, people keep mentioning he's shooting 39% from the field. But A, like, because he shot 39% from three last year, he was above average efficiency. Right. And B, um, he's still putting up good efficiency because he gets the line, but like he's shooting a lot better from two, right? But it's the fact that he's he's missed a lot. Of, he's shooting thirty percent from the corner after shooting forty percent there last year. So wow. um, those kinds, those are the kinds of things where you do expect regression to the mean. 
you would like to see that just so you're comfortable and like um but i think like the thing with quickly is like you look at grimes and you quickly quickly is a very is a great pull-up shooter but overall as a shooter is a catch and shoot guy there are guys who are better than him not to say he's not a good shooter but he Mm -hmm. is closer to good especially catch and shoot yeah than he is great what makes him great in that realm is the fact that he can be that accurate as a pull-up guy as well he's he's i think top 10 in the league in pull-up shooting you look at rj barrett uh it's been up and down i would like to see a strong finish yeah. that there's nothing but i think he's shown me at least enough over this last stretch where i can see the outlines of a two-time all-star and i can see the outlines of if a guy if we have to give him four for 80 i'm not you know for his second contract i don't hate that yeah, yeah, yeah. um i think he's shown enough ob like i wish he could the shooting had come along stronger it is what it is but he's shown the ability to impact games even without the jump shot right so there's enough there i think to take a chance and to say if the jump shot clicks he can be really dynamic there's also enough where I think his value isn't that low, so you can use him. So there's something I need to see from the younger players. I think I think we basically know what this team is. Um, and I think that, all things considered, that's a pretty bright direction for the future. Uh, I don't think that the big... Like I said, I don't think that the young guys not playing hurts them necessarily. Um, I guess the one mystery, the one guy I don't know as much about is Cam Reddish. And for him to show up the last 20 games and you know really... And when I talk about like people are gonna be like, oh, you want him to drop thirty points? What I I think his biggest impact could be on defense. He yes. has the capability to be a lockdown defender, but he too often loses focus. He too often isn't playing with structured. Uh, you know, his feel needs some work. Can Tibbs transform him into the, into like Luol Deng on defense? Mm-hmm. Um, and then because then on offense, really all he has to do is improve his shot selection. That's where it comes down to. Like he's just do too. He takes too many contested mid range shots because he can make them, and they're spectacular when he does. But it's just a bad part of his diet. If he sticks to catch and shoots, attacking closeouts, and using his size at the rim, and then yeah, the occasional freelance, especially when there's no shot creators on. I think that he's not far from being a, a good offensive player, but he's a bad defender despite making great defensive plays. If Tibbs can fix that. That would be because that gives you another, you know, that's just you. That's what you're trying to do is accumulate young guys with high ceilings. Yeah. And as far as the ones on the roster, those guys have done enough for me to be fairly confident, or at least in a place like you're on track. Um, I just haven't seen. I don't know that about Redder. So if we can add another guy like that, that would be very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel good going into an off season with. I feel fine with the front office's ability to like wherever they draft. I think they'll draft intelligently. Um, and like you're saying at this point, it, it's so bizarre that after game 46, so many Nick fans, myself included, I know are like, man, I can't wait to see how Cam Reddish looks like. That's like, that's the big escape. I think that I'm waiting for this year. Um, I, I will say, I don't expect him to be a cure-all. Yeah, no, that's not I, fair I, I, to him to think that he would be. And I don't think he's a better player than Quentin Grimes right now. I think a lot of people would disagree with that. Um, but um, but he has a much higher ceiling. And I think this is another example of like that kind of situational thing where uh, specifically when you have a guy like Miles Bridges dropping 40 points on you, throwing a guy with a 7-foot-1 wingspan who can jump with him yeah. is a pretty good idea. Yeah. Um, so and that's the kind of thing where like even if Reddish isn't a great all around defender yet, he can what he can do is guard. He could come out and guard Miles Bridges, and maybe no one could have that day. But yeah, uh, Cam Reddish was probably better equipped to do it than anyone on the Knicks roster. So. Let, let me ask you this last question: If Tom Thibodeau guaranteed playing time to either player, would you rather right now have Cam Reddish or Frank Nilakina? Oh, Reddish. Nice. Okay. Good. 
Well, that's if we is were that gonna because win of the offensive potential. Yeah, I think it's because of the offensive potential. Um, there's less spacing issues, right? So especially if you get him, like I can get him to be like, you're not going to freelance. We're playing you with Derrick Rose and Julius Randle. Right. Just hit open threes, hit him at 40%. Everyone's happy. Um, I think Frank can do more to help certain teams win, right? Um, but, but ultimately, yeah, in terms of long-term development, Reddish is the more exciting bet. Um, Grimes is an easier answer in that favor because Grimes is not quite frank on defense, but he's, I think he's just more consistent. He makes fewer mistakes than Reddish. Mm-hmm. He's very good on ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't make as, he doesn't take as many bad shots on offense really. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's about as good a shooter as Cam on like more volume. Um, so I think it's just a higher floor he gives you, but, um, Reddish probably has as high a ceiling on the team as anyone besides RJ. So, and, you know, in that level, so. Well, that will be exciting to see, and you're going to get uh, – I hear that Reddish is going to be back. Have you heard any specifics about when they think Reddish might be able to play? I, I keep hearing soon, but I don't think I've heard exactly no. when. Yeah, I mean, some of uh, some of it is the ankle thing, and you should obviously be – especially long, lanky guys like that, you want, their, you want to be cautious with that. Right. I haven't heard anything specific. I wonder if it's just kind of fortuitous timing that – if he comes back in a couple of weeks, it'll be right around the trade deadline. And that might clear a path for him, whether it's moving Burks or it's moving Fournier. That's one thing I'd be surprised if we didn't see. Uh, not because those players have been bad necessarily. Uh, especially Fournier has been pretty good of late. Yeah. Um, just, but if we're not making the playoffs with them and we have good young play, it's not like we're trying to tank and like play Kevin Knox, right? You have Reddish, who had a couple of big games in the playoffs. You have Grimes, who's shown the ability to shoot the ball at a high level and defend. Uh, You quickly is who's earned more minutes, right? So it's not even – but it's like for what we're paying them and for what we could get for those vets, the gap in production probably isn't isn't warranting enough superior performance to the point where, you know, wouldn't want to clear room for for some of these guys. So I would imagine some consolidation like that is just going to happen. Uh, and, you know, then we probably stop complaining so much about Tibbs' rotations, right? Because <laughs> when there's 15 guys who can play, that's just a tough job. So. Yeah. Well, trade line trade deadline comes up in a couple of weeks. This week, the Knicks have four games coming up. It's not an easy slate. Uh, tomorrow at 1, they host the Clippers. Then the next night, Monday, they're in Cleveland. Two nights later, they're in Miami. Two nights later, they're in Milwaukee. Um, so three tough road games in the East. And then a stretch of... Four out of five, starting with that Miami game, it will be on national TV. So if the Knicks are going to turn it around and change the vibes and you want everyone to know about it, this would be the time to start doing it. So we will check in with you at some point during next week, hopefully after a big Knicks road win. Um, Stacey Patton, thank you as always for your presence and your knowledge. Um, Have a good weekend. Everybody else out there, take care of yourselves, and we will talk to you soon. Peace. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.